<laughs> Hello. Hey. Why did I just hear laughter? Oh no, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I'm around a group of people right now. But I, I was just confused because it was—it sounded like you were in front of a live studio audience for a sec. You're listening to the Music Management Podcast for November 26, 2017. Learn more at musicmanagement.com. Hi, and welcome to another Music Manument. I'm Tom, and on today's show, we have Kirk Pearson. Of uh, Actually, he also runs a band called Bit. We talk a lot about that. We talk about where he is in the world. It's kind of like, when he explains it, it's kind of a where in the world is Kirk uh, sort of thing, like Carmen Sandiego. No, not really. But he does actually go all over the place. Uh, we learn a lot about his background and uh, a very interesting story about uh, the song we're going to play at the end of the show. So here's my interview with Kirk Pearson, starting right now. I, I want to say I saw that you were in Costa Rica. I was in Costa Rica. Yeah, so it's a, it's a bit interesting right now. So I'm a, I'm a composer and a, a songwriter. And I, I, I mean, my principal job in the United States is that I write, I write music for film. Uh, but I, a weird thing happened uh, this March. I won, a, I won a very interesting and wonderful fellowship from IBM, the computer company. Okay. And currently, my, my job is that I am traveling around the world and uh, visiting different communities that invent their own musical instruments. And I'm composing pieces for each of them. So in Costa Rica, I was working with a bunch of people, including this, uh, this truly wonderful guy, uh, Juan Villaperos, who uh, literally builds synthesizers by taking apart children's electronic toys and like kind of uh, Frankenstein's monstering them together. Oh, cool. Uh, and I, I was working him for quite some time. I went to Guatemala directly afterward to work with uh, David Marin, who's a guy who builds instruments out of recycled bicycle parts. I'm okay. currently here in Costa Rica to work with uh, La Orquestra Reciclaus y Petura. It's uh, inside uh, what I believe is South America's largest landfill. And uh, it's an orchestra entirely built out of instruments that are built out of salvaged, um, uh, salvaged recycled parts. So it's an orchestra where the uh, the cellos are made out of oil drums and the saxophones are made out of PVC pipes. And okay. It's a it's a it's a, it's a very um, I suppose it's kind of strange, but it's a very exciting project. And I'm actually meeting them at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. So a good uh, eight hours from right now. So you <laughs> you haven't Ryan, but you haven't met with them yet. You're you're actually there to meet with actually, them tomorrow. Exactly. I arrived I arrived yesterday in Paraguay, and we wow. happened to schedule the interview the night before. Um, so yeah, I'm meeting them at nine o'clock tomorrow. I'm, a, I'm slightly nervous, but incredibly excited. They are easily my, my favorite South American orchestra. Yeah. Um, they, they make music that's truly incredible, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm composing, I believe the first original piece for this orchestra, which is uh, quite exciting. So now this orchestra now, is this still part of the IBM thing? Because there it sounds, you said they're using upscaled or, um, uh, upcycled stuff for it. Oh, exactly. Well, it is part of the IBM thing. The, uh, so the IBM project, it's a, it's a fellowship that's called the Watson. IBM has the problem of naming everything Watson. Okay. Uh, but you know, it's a, you know, their famous supercomputer is named Watson as well. Yeah. It's a, it's a fellowship that they've been offering, I believe, since 1950, where students from around the United States, uh, every year, 40 students get this. You pitch them a project that is um, kind of, you know, it's bizarre and involves travel. And if you go through, you know, 10 rounds of interviews and they like you, you get it. 
Okay. So I'm, I'm, my theme is invented instruments. So I'm going around the world to compose for, you know, compose for them. But I believe that currently there's a project on circuses where there's a person that's going around the world to live with circus communities in Mongolia and huh. Burkina Faso and Brazil. And there's a, there's another project about organ donation in various economic systems around the country. Hmm. It's uh so, so the fellowships are definitely very distinct. I just happen to be doing one that's, um, that's quite musical. Yeah, no. And, uh, it's been it's been absolutely fun thus far. I've gotten to meet a lot of absolutely fantastic people around Latin America, and I uh, eventually take off for uh, for South Africa in January. Oh wow! Continue the rest of my year there. What are you going to be doing in South Africa? So, yeah. Well, in South Africa, I'm actually using it as a transit point mostly, but I'm I'm working my way up to Zimbabwe to work with uh, this this really wonderful guy named Gerekai Tirikoti. He uh he leads uh he he builds imbiras, which are it's kind kind of similar to uh, to kalimbas uh, for North American audiences, but they're they're thumb pianos. He has a oh, full okay. orchestra of them, and all of his innovations are are truly fantastic. Um, uh, of course, you know Zimbabwe's been been in the news a lot recently uh, yeah. following the coup d'état, and they 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 have a new president that that was literally installed today. So I'm um, hoping all goes well. I'll make it my way to Zimbabwe and eventually up to to Mozambique and uh, and Tanzania before continuing on to onto Europe and, you know, continue on with, uh, with different communities. Yeah. I only have the <laughs> passing knowledge of the headlines. I've never actually no, read course. into it. So, cause I'm not going there. You are. So I'm sure you know more. No, about of course, it. of course, <laughs> no, of course, of course, of course. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've also been, uh, been trying to, to schedule this interview for a good 10 months right now too. And I realized my apologies. on. No, that. no, no, no. That's, um, uh, that's sorry. actually not that out of the ordinary for us to tell you the truth. Oh, actually for, for music <laughs> manument. Yeah. 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 No, I remember the first time I was stuck on a bus when my interview time was, and it was, you know, oh, was that you? Shit. I remember that. Okay, <laughs> that was me. No, that was me. I was stuck in traffic, and I was, I was just like biting my nails, waiting to. Yeah, yeah. To and if I'm not mistaken, I was going to see, or I had tickets to a show that night, or something. So it was like, oh, I couldn't delay or something like oh, that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, fantastic. No, that was uh, okay. Then, well, at least it worked out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so otherwise, I would have waited for you, but it was like ah, I had somewhere to go. Um, so one question I wanted to ask now, uh, well, first of all, where, so where are you actually from? Oh, so I'm from New York city. Uh, I was, uh, I was raised in Manhattan. I moved to Brooklyn when I was about 10. And then when I was 18, I moved out to uh, scenic, uh, Oberlin, Ohio. It's uh, hmm. a part of the state that is incredibly flat. The The tallest yes. point in Oberlin, Ohio, is when they uh, excavated the swimming pool in like 1929 and needed to put the dirt somewhere. <laughs> so it's uh, but I, I was there for five years. I studied uh, I studied composition at the same time as paleontology, two okay. fields that don't uh, intersect very often. No, uh, but no, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but but presently, right. So, so right now I I won this fellowship. I'm currently in Paraguay. And, uh, yeah, in a year I have to actually settle down and find a real job. But, um, as of now, uh, film scoring has been, uh, has been, has worked out for me actually pretty well. And I, I very much enjoy it and yeah. get to work with a lot of very interesting people. How did you get into the film scoring? Oh boy. Well, it was a bit strange. I, uh, I was, uh, I was first hired by, uh, by the, by my office, the office of communications at, at Oberlin conservatory, uh, where, cause Oberlin puts out a lot of video content about, you know, their professors and their programs and such. Yeah. And I was hired to, well, you know, to make them sound nice. So I would write a score for each of them. 
And uh, it kind of caught on. And uh, after a bit of time, I started getting uh, invitations from uh, independent film directors and working with them. And then after a while, I started getting invitations from huge corporations like, you know, Nike or Greenpeace or Ford. And I started uh, writing scores for them. So my job kind of sits in the middle presently. It sits in the middle of, uh, of film scoring and advertising. I do, I do a lot of work for advertising. Um, but, uh, principally I'm kind of known as the, uh, I'm, I'm kind of known as the weird guy, Okay. <laughs> I would say in the world of, in the world of sound houses and, uh, and film scoring companies, I'm, I'm, I'm typically hired to do, to go, to do gigs that are particularly strange. I, you know, for example, I did a gig for Greenpeace, essentially a three minute horror movie that they directed. Uh-huh. And, uh, I, I was hired to do an absolutely bizarre sound design job for them, but I really liked it. And I guess, yeah. On the flip side, like with Ford, I was hired to do uh, to kind of write them in uh, like a music concrete piece, so to speak. So I I did an advertisement for them that was entirely with um, with blenders. Oh, cool! Uh, that represented the sound of cars, and it actually worked quite well. Uh, oh, I never I considered that. That's funny. That would sound like cars. <laughs> it's quite similar. Yeah, the uh, oh, the gig for Greenpeace. Geez, that was two years ago. But a thing that was very interesting about it, it was uh, it was a pretty. Um, kind of a stomach churning ad okay <laughs> i remember when i first saw it the, the theme of the ad was um was to save california's water you know this was back back during the drought in 2015 okay and so the ad starts out totally normal it's people walking around their garden and you know like the sprinkler is going on and someone jumps in the pool and slowly over the course of the ad all that water turns to blood oh nice <laughs> um, and i remember you know yeah, it's, it's very green pc i know uh-huh. i um, i remember watching this ad first and going like geez this is awfully gory but it actually presented a kind of uh fascinating compositional problem for me uh and i was working with a studio at the time the studio's name is ant food they're based in new york okay and uh slowly as the ad develops they um like you know the sound of this uh this rotating uh sprinkler turns into the sound of a world war ii helicopter and the sound of you know a toilet that's flushing turns into the sound of uh, an elevator that's breaking down so it was uh it was an interesting problem with the uh with the it's, it was essentially a, a compositional problem of counterpoint okay. because as the ad slowly develops into, you know, from water to blood, your sounds develop from sounds that are very literal to sounds that are, that are emblematic, but, uh, but kind of, uh, kind of, uh, unsettling I'd say. All right. So, you know, like the, the rotating sound of this sprinkler, for example, turns into the sound of a helicopter and, you know, it's, it's only draws you into this world of, you know, of, um, of kind of like sadism in a very yeah. strange way. Um, but you know, so, so those are the kinds of jobs that I typically get and they're, and they're quite fun. Uh, and at the same time, I try to try to maintain a career in, uh, in songwriting at the same time, which is, which is probably what this, uh, probably what this interview is about. I just <laughs> go with what I find interesting. So that's right now we're doing fine. Um, no, that's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And, and my question would be, so when you're talking about this, uh, it, it sounds like, are you basing the orchestration around, it sounds like you're doing a lot of Foley. So are you basing the orchestration around that type of, of stuff? I, I, I very much love that you use the word orchestration in the same word as fully. It, uh, <laughs> it's very interesting because I, I, you know, you typically get hired in this industry, you know, for gigs in, uh, in film comp or for gigs in sound design. Mm-hmm. And it kind of came to the point where I was getting so many, like, um, I was getting so many jobs where it felt kind of strange to put a name on one or the either yeah. because it's, you know, it's not necessarily diegetic material, which is typically what we would call composition, but it's, it's material that, you know, that really straddles the line between the two. And 
honestly, you know, this sounds kind of strange, but I, I honestly cannot tell you a difference between composition and sound design. I view mm. them as, as exactly the same thing. So typically when I get a gig that involves both, it's, you know, it's, it becomes really important to play the diegetic sound, the sound design uh, off of the music and to, and to treat it as, uh, as something that's similar. Okay. Uh, so it's, I, I, I suppose that's kind of become my, my aesthetic or my, my style that I'm known for. But uh, but I'm honestly kind of proud of that. I think it's interesting. I think it's a lo- it's a much more liberating way of looking at sound and looking at music as you know, as this you know truly complex you know, truly complex distinctly human thing that we we, we can't really put a name on. Yeah, it it in yeah. listening or hearing you explain this, but having heard your music, like how does yeah, yeah, that yeah. how does that differ? How do you how did you come about the style of music that you actually put out for your own sort of songwriting process? Oh my, that's a very difficult question. <laughs> uh, I guess the uh, uh, it's a it's a great question, but um, I don't know. I think uh, I think uh, I mean after studying you know classical composition for so many years, even even in pop music, you know, uh, I, I I I approach uh, I approach the process pretty distinctly. I I believe the uh, well the the um, the album that was released immediately after we uh, we scheduled the interview was uh, the first time uh, or when I first saw Lena. Uh, which is an album that's uh, it's about a pretty strange topic. It's about uh, test patterns. It's about the yeah. uh, the different uh, the different things that we uh, we quantify and calibrate uh, digital codecs for. So, for example, the uh, the um, the the principal example is uh, when they were developing the uh, the image codec for uh, for JPEG and PNG. I'm piecing uh, all this oops. together right now as I'm looking at your album. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> it's interesting because I, I don't know if most people who listen to the album really understand the process to it. Uh, but, an, it, well, so a codec is the term that we use in computer science for mm-hmm. um, a type of file that uh, tries to uh, compress its information, tries to reduce the amount of space you need to store it. By getting into details that humans don't notice. For example, uh, like in, in audio, humans, you really can't hear sounds below 20,000 hertz, or probably, sorry, between under 2,000 hertz and over 20,000 hertz. So codecs like the MP3, for example, right. just, you know, we just get rid of them because, you know, they're not important and we don't need them for, for actually compressing a file. Yeah, but, unless, uh, of course, you're an for, audiophile and you're going to argue that point to the end going, I can hear the difference. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I like. I actually. Um, geez, uh, a funny story. A gig I did for Anfood, that same st- uh, that same studio that did the that we worked on the Greenpeace ad for, actually discarded um, a week's worth of my work because it was encoded at the incorrect sampling rate, oh. and they felt that people could hear difference between the two. Um, of course, I you know I mean of, of course I respect their opinion. I greatly respect the studio, but I uh, did you do I, it at forty eight instead of four four one or something like that? Or no, I, I didn't. I did it in four four one instead of forty eight. Uh, oh, yeah, okay, the, um, okay. I did it too low. I recorded all you know the the marimba was uh, was too low a sampling rate, and of course in in reality I can't hear the difference, and I think I'm I think I'm pretty accustomed to digital yeah. sampling rates, but I can't hear the difference. Um, but regardless, the so the MP3 was developed to strip away all the details that human ears, you know, the human brain aren't very good at picking up. Yeah. And the story that's uh, that's pretty interesting is uh, the uh, Alexander Sachuk, who was uh, developing this algorithm at the time. This was in the early 1990s, where Suzanne Vega's Tom's Diner was, you know, a smash hit on the radio. Yeah. It's a good song. Uh, but he he tried this uh, this uh, to create an MP3 of this uh, this file. And it didn't work. 
And for the following six months, he slowly fine-tuned this algorithm until it worked perfectly on Suzanne Vega's acapella voice. Okay. And um, so in the end, it essentially turns out that all of our MP3 files in some way or another, although it might not be immediately noticeable, are fine-tuned to the voice of Suzanne Vega. <laughs> uh, and it's interesting because the a uh, similar process was used for many different file formats. For example, the, the JPEG and the PNG and the PDF, all, all image file formats essentially are calibrated to the image of a, of a Playboy photograph of, of Lena Soderberg, which is where the EP gets its name when I first yeah. saw Lena. And the, the process in the EP, which, you know, it's, it's not so much a critique. It's just, uh, just a facet I found interesting is that all of our digital files are essentially calibrated to some sort of platonic original, some sort of, you know, like aspirational form mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, that we, that we, that we want to be. Yeah. As in, you know, the human voice wants to be Suzanne Vega or the human face wants to be Lena Soderbergh. And I found it interesting that principally the, uh, you know, these, um, these platonic originals were of white women. Oh. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I just thought that was interesting. And uh, so, so the EP is kind of... Uh, kind of about the tension in that process that arises when you build your technology around a platonic original that does not represent your, your principal uh, user base, for uh -huh. example. Um, we have this implicit racism and sexism that's embedded in all of our digital technology. Hmm. And, you know, well, of course, you know, with an MP3, like, you know, it, 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 it probably doesn't really matter. It's like, it's like the same case with sampling rate. It doesn't really matter whose voice is based around. It's interesting that we as a society have chosen a platonic original. Hmm. And these problems still continue. I mean, I remember when I was in, geez, when I was in high school, uh, the, uh, there was a particular um, official recognition software that yeah. became... I believe it was the Xbox, but I'm not exactly sure. But that it could not recognize black people. Oh. <laughs> uh, very simply, you know, very simply because the technology was not calibrated around that standard. Huh. And, um, you know, so I, I, I use that, I guess, a bit as more of a, as, you know, artistic license than anything else. But um, our technologies still carry a bias with them. Yeah. And uh, it's just important that, that we're aware of that, that we're aware of that societal impetus that pushes us, pushes us towards deciding what original yeah. Our technology is based around. Exactly. Yeah. So so the EP explores a tons of different things. It explores, you know, the the lorem ipsum text that we that we use to uh, to test web pages. Right. It explores the uh, the notion that when you when you first learn a computing language, a programming language, you uh, you make it write hello world. You make your yeah. you make your computer program declare human sentience in a really weird way. It examines the um, the Indian head test pattern, which is one of my favorites. It's a during World War II, in order to make uh, World War II broadcasts seem uh, appear in the correct contrast, we used the pattern of a, of a Native American in a headdress, um, which is just kind of interesting. It's you know it's a it's an old symbol of uh, of you know of manifest destiny, you know of, of genocide yeah. that was you know essentially being used to to make a particular war effort, another genocide, seem you know look better. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's just, um, it's just a thing that I thought was very interesting and, you know, kind of, you know, became obsessed enough with to make a, a full EP, uh, with bit. Around. Yeah. Whoop. Did I lose you? Uh, the, oh, sorry. Cut you off. Oh, there you go. There you are. We lost you for a second there. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm here. Um, one thing that I found uh, that I think is kind of ironic, too, going back to the Suzanne Vega thing, which, first of all, 
I mean, we could say, well, I, I see your point. It could also be like, oh, it was probably the only, I mean, it was an acapella file. It was something that he could really, you know, but, but it's the, it, oh, totally, the irony totally, of it. Totally, yeah. But the irony of it as well, too, is that it was used to create a lossy uh, format. And she ended up going on to marry a producer who is very well known for his sounds, Mitchell Froom. Yeah. Froom, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I found that, I, I found that kind of interesting. I that actually she was... have a terrible, I have a terrible, terrible story of the first time I met Suzanne Vega. Oh, it was with her current husband and I mistook him for Mitchell Froom. Oh no. And what proceeded was a couple <laughs> minutes of awkwardness. No, exactly. Ruby Froom, actually, uh, Suzanne Vega's daughter is a absolutely fantastic musician and a very good friend. Oh. We've actually collaborated before on a, on two EPs prior to Lena uh, the song to Cairo uh, from Jekyll Electric Effect is really? Sunny Ruby. Interestingly enough, yeah, coincidentally enough, that's cool. Yeah, I, yeah. I go to her holiday parties and stuff. She's 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 an absolutely lovely person. Oh, nice! <laughs> wow, look at that. That's a weird little one degree of separation thing going on there. That's cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I only it's a bit uh, coincidental. No, I was a fan. I I was a very much a fan of hers, and also I was a uh, well. I, Still, kind of, I'm a huge fan of Mitchell Froom. So it's, it, I mean, I Mitchell know that Froome they're not does together. Some truly incredible work. Yeah, he really does. He lives in Los Angeles, I believe, currently. Yeah, yeah, like even his but solo he did, he works. Actually, yeah, a, f- a funny story. The uh, so so Ruby and I actually went to high school together. We went to uh, LaGuardia oh. High School for the Performing Arts. Uh, she so she studied a vocal performance, and I studied uh, cello at that point. Strangely enough, okay, kind of before I came, you know, before I became well, you know, regarded as principally a composer. And the, I remember the first time I met her, it was in, uh, it was when it was in 10th grade algebra two class. Yeah. And I remember meeting her, realizing her name was Ruby Froome and really wanting to say, you know, your name is exactly, you know, it's, it's exactly the same as a, as a, a 1994 soul coughing album called Ruby Vroom. <laughs> right. Right. But I, of course I didn't say that, you know, you don't want to be that kid. And then of course, later <laughs> I realized, oh, that was actually, that was actually a pun on her name yeah. by Rachel from the producer of that record. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but yeah, so that, that was quite a surprise for me to figure out later. Oh, wow. And then I, I also wanted to yeah. go back one more thing. I meant to, for some reason, this reminded me of that. Oh, of course. The people that you're meeting tomorrow. Now, um, I find yes. that interesting uh, because I'm I'm in Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin, and we actually in the 1950s had a very similar composer teacher, uh, uh, Harry Parch, who also did Harry stuff. Harry Parch was from Madison? No, he taught in I Madison. No he was from Madison. He taught in Madison. No He's way. He's not from here, but he taught there. And and he, he th- this is incredible. where he taught how to do the diamond marimba and all that kind of stuff. Uh, of and course, he would build stuff out of uh, airplane uh, junkyard stuff and giant instruments that only several people knew or were trained how to play. You know, so I, course, I find that yeah. interesting that you're going to do that tomorrow. And, and that's what that made me think of. And it's like, hey, we had something like that here, although yours sounds way cooler and actually is something that's up to date. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. I actually think it's very interesting. I mean, you know, like o- Oberlin, of course, is a, is, a, is a huge fan of Harry Parch. And I, I expected as I prepared this fellowship that I would find a lot of, you know, Harry Parches around the world. A lot of people, you know, yeah. kind of in their basements, tinkering around with strange recycled objects to build stuff. And it was, um, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's interesting. I found very little in the way of people creating physical acoustic mm-hmm. uh, instruments and, and a lot more in the way of uh, uh, digital or, or at least, you know, electronic instruments, which yeah. you know, I, I don't think is bad. I just think that's an interesting change in, uh, 
and what we contextualize them as as an invented instrument. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea. Have you been to House on the Rock, by the way? Uh, I have. I must ask. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I thought it was so interesting. I visited House on the Rock for the first time a couple of months ago, and I mean, it's you know, it's a museum that's filled with invented right. instruments, most of which don't don't work, you know, at all. Yeah. Most of which are you know a, a MIDI file. They didn't even bother to get an actual performers to perform them they just play the midi <laughs> yeah but um but it's a it's a it's a truly fascinating attraction yeah it's, it's still a, very, a trip regardless yeah <laughs> oh it's yeah no, a trip is the only way to describe it it's three hours of just walking through the most dreamlike just mystical weird space you can yeah it's, it, you know, it's absolutely incredible for any listeners and please take a visit it's, it's it's very much worth your three hours yeah and, and then it, at, at one point you turn a corner and there's like a giant like uh moby dick whale for some reason and it's like why is that there um yeah <laughs> totally <laughs> yeah in the uh so oh so getting back to uh your stuff now do you 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 say you've composed and you were taught on cello do you play all the instruments on the album or so you do principally well it's uh it's interesting so bit was kind of so i was i'm you know i was raised as a multi-instrumentalist i was originally a guitarist principally my my first instrument is the mandolin <laughs> very oh, interesting right. but i but i mean I, I studied the cello very seriously for years and in, in, in many orchestras in new york and broadway pits and session recordings on cello um and uh, but I mean, mostly I, I learned to play a lot of instruments kind of badly, <laughs> which was useful for for a composer because you learn the you know you learn the idiom, you learn the vocabulary of the instrument. Right. Uh, but bit was a so 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 bit is the name of the ensemble that produced Lena and Jekyll Electric Effect and all those other records. Uh, bit is a uh, is, is it's kind of like a Rolodex, I guess, essentially of friends that I have um, okay. really around the world that play interesting instruments. And uh, generally, I would do these projects during summers when I was away from when I was away from Oberlin and also working, you know, another job in paleontology or computer science or you know, whatever I could find for that summer. And I, I would I would write songs based around a theme and then I would essentially travel around and record individual parts or have people send parts in. Uh, which kind of became an interesting uh, modular style of composition and henceforth the name bit, which is, both, you know, like. A bit of parting, part a bit of uh, of something whole, and also uh, a portmanteau of uh, binary digits, you know, yeah. the, the principal unit of uh, of information. So, um, so, so, bit was my project in which you know I would I would write a song and then I would you know write individual string parts and then travel around New York City to record the cello and the viola or stuff like that. Um, and uh, so it became for me, interestingly enough, as much a social project as a musical one. Where I would travel around, I would see many of my very close friends who who I truly love for the first time in you know a year. We would record a song and uh, we would continue on. And what's interesting about it is at this point we've released uh, this is our fifth EP that we've released together. Yeah. And uh, it, it at this point encompasses some somewhere in the in the field of seventy five individual musicians, uh, composers, programmers, and so forth. And what's especially strange is that a lot of these compo- uh, these musicians, pardon, uh, didn't know each other originally, but after they were kind of, you know, composited together on a, on a song by bit, they ended up meeting each other in person. Yeah. So um, it's, uh, it's kind of a strange amorphous community that we've developed, and it's, it's one that I'm truly proud of. Uh, but it's one that at this point spans five continents and, you know, geez, a good at least 40 of, of, uni- of the U.S. states. It's, yeah. Uh, it's a um, it's 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 a project that's kind of uh, kind of gotten out of hand, but one that uh, one that I'm, I'm I'm pretty happy about and uh, hopefully continue continue to work with. How do you compo- or uh, how do you coordinate it's, that stuff? 
um, well, it's a, it's a process. It's um, so it's uh, it's generally I, I write the songs. I have particular musicians or particular voices in mind, and I I simply contact them and find them. And there are, I mean, there, there are many mainstays of Bit Records. There are there are definitely musicians that have appeared on, on all five of them, and will definitely continue to appear in the future. But it's uh, it's you know, it's uh, it's kind of a I guess a beta test of uh, of a form of modular ensemble that can really only be possible in the digital information. Uh, working with people that have never uh, that have never met each other physically, but kind of you know learn to meet each other digitally. Well, are you and, just? Uh, you know, but are you just it's, coordinating it's it over over email, or are you using Dropbox or SoundCloud or you know, all those things? No, no, exactly. It's, it's principally over email. I, I I prefer to record my people in person if, okay. uh, if possible because you know I'm you know I, I'm an engineer at heart. And, uh, yeah. And I enjoy that, but I also you know I mean I, I I really love I really love working with people in person, and that that carries through that carries through all my work, despite the fact that I do most of my work electronically. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to meet with a person, to discuss the piece with them, to uh, to really let them find their own voice. I find the best group collaborations uh, always result when you when you when you trust people and when you let people do what they know how to do individually. Okay. Because you know, obviously, you know, like I'm, you know, I'm not a violist, uh, so you know, I, I can write the part be viola, but I will, I will trust the violist in the way that they want to express it. Yeah, I get that. And I think that that uh, that sense of uh, individuality. Yeah. Jeez, I'm sorry. Individuality and uh, modularity is kind of what uh, what makes the uh, the bit records have their own distinctive feel in a yeah. certain way. It's an ensemble that is uh, that is interestingly enough uh, made possible by the World Wide Web, and also is principally uh, the subject of our compositions is typically the World Wide Web, yeah. in a way or the other. So it's it's kind of a nice little recursive meta thing. Oh. <laughs> The uh, you broke up there on the very last part that you said something, but it sounded really I'm sorry. neat. Okay, no, no, I'll repeat that. I guess. Uh, so interestingly enough, the uh, bit is an ensemble that is made uh, made by the. Bo- Let me try that again. It is an ensemble that it's that's made possible uh, made possible by the World Wide Web. It's yeah. a digital collaboration, and principally, our subject material is the World Wide Web. It's it's yeah. dealing with a, uh, it's music about communication predominantly. Music about a. Uh, communication and the history of communication. So in an interesting way, we've created a kind of ensemble that's, uh, that's a bit recursive. It's a bit meta that the, uh, the subject of our compositions is also the, the means for mm-hmm. our collaboration. Okay. And now you, uh, you talked about working for sound houses and, uh, the work that you're doing for IBM. So how did you get, uh, involved in making creative commons music? In creative commons music. Well, I mean, that, that was largely through bit. I, I, you know, I realized after a point, and uh, when I was in uh, in high school in 2011, I I produced an uh, an EP called it was originally called Sumi in all capital letters with oh, three nice. exclamation points as a you know exactly a, a, a very wise idea that was indicated by my my composition teacher at the time that he thought would be a wise idea. His name is Jim Poliesi. He's an absolutely incredible composer from New York. Okay. And uh, the uh, the project was uh, it was 999 different very distinct samples that I stole from people and oh. repurposed them into original compositions. I felt, I mean, at the time I felt, and I, I still predominantly feel that, you know, the idea of composition is, it, it is still a modular process that every composition that I turn out is really just, you know, a representation of an entire lifetime's worth of music that I've digested and kind of, you know, well, pardon the term, but regurgitated into something new. Okay. So I wrote these compositions for Sumi and, uh, 
and then just kind of went back, found my source material, and pieced them together. The uh, opening track is uh, pretty distinctive. I believe it's still, I believe it's actually featured in the Wikipedia page for sampling okay. uh, a couple of years ago. But it's a track, it's a composition called Going Up. And it starts with uh, Three Dog Night singing one. Okay. From One is the Loneliest Number, followed yeah. by Blossom Deary singing two from T for Two. And it works its way all up to 99. And that that's how the EP opened. So, you know, I, of course, is, you know, like uh, the bright little fucker I was in 2011 mm-hmm. <laughs> at age 16, yeah. released this album called Sumi Into the World. And then a week later, I remember getting uh, getting a letter at my home from the RAA uh-huh. uh, telling me to take it down. It was uh, <laughs> I, I kept it up, though, however, because I felt that everything I included in this EP was Creative Commons, which it turned out to be OK. But that in many ways kind of career i after that got a got a, a short-term gig working for uh well producing uh music for uh npr's radio lab oh cool and uh fo- you know following that so so it, it kind of it kind of blossomed into something uh a lot better and a lot more intelligent and coherent than my than my work in 2011 yeah um but uh but in, in many ways i kind i kind of hold that same philosophy that the music is something that is modular and it's something that is uh it's something that is Simply, it's it's just too complicated to be able to stop copyright label on, especially in the age of digital communication. Okay. Um, and in many ways, that's that's kind of influenced my work until this point. Yeah. So, so you literally uh, went towards that sort of uh, release model because of the build upon culture that you were trying to express. Exactly. Okay. Well, exactly. I mean, I felt that, you know, if I could create a, a series of compositions that were entirely based on derivative work, it was, you know, just ironic for me to claim a claim possession of my own. Yeah. And I, I still do encourage people to to remix my work. Jekyll Electric Effect, the EP, was actually released. Um, if you download it, it comes with a good 12 stems of one particular track that you're oh, encouraged cool. to remix. And I, I, I do encourage that work of, uh, I, I encourage that, that way of thinking of uh, pretty much all my work. A, uh, a recent piece that I did that's uh, actually I, I'm quite proud of. It's uh, it's strange because it's not an EP. It's not a composition in any traditional sense. It's a uh, it's kind of a sculpture. It's a it's a piece called Vientophone, uh, okay. and it's currently installed permanently in uh, in Oberlin, Ohio. It's an Aeolian harp. It's a it's a very strange looking uh, kind of prism that, as strong winds pass through it, uh, it literally creates noise. It's a it's a piece of music that is a sculpture that is constantly composed by the building and the the air that moves around the building. Oh, cool. Uh, it's still my goal with this project that it's up there for all composition students and electronic music students to record and to remix and to improvise with. Hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a piece that doesn't have a beginning or end to it. And it's, you know, it's a piece that's intended to be modular in, in, a, in a very abstract sense, uh, but one that I think is, uh, is truly creative and... Uh, and frankly, I I found inspiring. Is it a composition students? A large piece? Like how how does how does it work? Well, it's a good. It's uh, there there are images online. If you if you Google Vientophone in my name, <laughs> oh, it's okay. uh, it's a it's it's a it's a prism. It's a good uh, four and a half feet tall, uh, and it's designed to to mimic the windows of this of the the very bizarrely designed Oberlin Conservatory that sits around it. Okay. Um, but you are you are encouraged, and there's a little, you know there's a little plaque that explains this. But you're encouraged to go up and attach a contact microphone to it and record it if you wish, and to and to repurpose these sounds on their own. And the the sound it makes is a truly, truly bizarre, eerie, ambient sound whenever a strong wind happens to pass by. So it will hmm. never in its lifetime produce 
produce you know anything that sounds remotely similar to anything it's produced in the past it's chaotic it's uh entropic stochastic it's uh uh it's a it's a composition that keeps on giving huh <laughs> that's pretty cool <laughs> i'm sorry oh, thank you. I, I was i, I hope so <laughs> i was trying to look it up also while, <laughs> while you were telling me because you said it was online oh, yeah, yeah, you can, yeah a viento phone v-i-e-n-t-o-p-h-o-n-e oh uh, i didn't you might have to google my name yeah, I, yeah, I didn't spell that right whatsoever. That's why I wasn't finding it. But I wasn't surprised that I wasn't spelling no, it's okay. it right. <laughs> no, I, I went to liberal arts college. Everything I spell has to be esoteric and complicated. But yeah, viento is in Spanish, or viento, the, the wind. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's kind of a stretch goal of mine to eventually uh, to to make a series of sculptures that that produce music based on wind, uh, water, fire, and earth. Okay. Uh, and a very stretch goal of mine to uh, a project I've always wanted to do would be to create a bunch of invent a bunch of musical instruments that are played entirely by, by natural resources and to install them in a park or a trail. Yeah. And so you would walk along the trail and, you know, you would pass by something like, you know, a thousand different wind chimes in one section and, you know, several alien harps in another, an instrument that's, uh, that's literally thermally controlled or one that's controlled by water. And the composition would be dictated mm. by, uh, by the amount of time you spent walking through it. Oh, okay. I, I think that, uh, the idea of composition is kind of nice way instead of, you know, cause we're, we're you know, we're so used to the model of people going to a concert hall and sitting down or yeah. you know, and listening to a piece. But I think, you know, it's, it's a lot more fun to play with the medium, to write a, to write a piece of music that's dictated by the person that walks through it and opposed to the person that sits down and waits for the piece of music. Yeah. It's one that's more modular, one that's human controlled. Hmm. And, but yeah. Do you play live <laughs> at all? I do every once in a while, interestingly enough. Uh, but, um, it's, it's, it's kind of subsided this year, obviously, because I'm on a because I'm on a fellowship. But uh, yeah. but yeah, typically when I perform live, it's with my principal instrument, the mandolin, and uh, really? with the computer at the same time. Huh. So uh, yeah, it's uh so it's interesting. It's a uh, it, it's a bit of a it's a bit problematic. I realized uh, after Bit was founded that Bit is an ensemble that can never really perform live. Right, that's why I ask. Yeah, ensemble that's global. You know exactly. It's 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 a good point. So typically when I perform, it's just me and a computer. Um, but I've, I've, I've kind of, I've stopped doing that in recent years. I kind of, you know, pulled a, pulled a Harry Nielsen, okay, uh, so to speak. Um, I still do love performing live and do love performing with ensembles, but I, at this point in my, in my career, I guess it's something that I focused on less and, and instead, uh, started to embrace the digital, huh. a, you know, a, a means of, uh, a means of performance that you know, really wasn't possible before my lifetime. Right. And I do like, like the, I was born in, well, I like the visual of you doing the laptop DJ thing, but you have a mandolin. So yeah. no, exactly, it's a, you know, it's a bit different. The, the metal is not exactly a common instrument. It's, you know, I, I, I suppose it's kind of, you know, I was born in 1994 and I've seen, I've seen the internet turn from, you know, from something where, you know, where no one knows what email is to, to something that is kind of literally built into every, you know, a pretty much every Western human, like, you know, yeah. last time on phone, it probably wasn't very recently. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, the, digital technology is is part of us we we are transhuman it's not it's not physically embedded with us but for all intents and purposes we, we live on the internet yeah um and you know that that mode of expression has let me carry forth with bit as long along with this you know with this ibm project and and countless others it's a it's a mode of communication that i won't say is definitively good or bad but one that i think is certainly interesting and one that is definitely worth embracing yeah and i mean hell Until it's how we're, we're talking right now I mean, we're boom. No, exactly. <laughs> You're on your phone talking no, exa- to me over I mean, video right now from wherever the hell you are. 
<laughs> <You know? laughs> no, exactly. No, in many ways, music music manumit shares uh, shares a common thread with Bit. Certainly, it's uh, it's it's something that's only been possible within the last twenty years, and it's you know it's an exciting thing that we're embracing. Yeah, uh, and an exciting you know, you know, my apologies to Professor McLuhan, but you know, an exciting extension of humanity. Yeah, an exciting extension of the self. You know. Yeah. And um, also, is there so so I always like to ask this question uh, at the end because I, I find out a bunch of interesting things sometimes that I didn't know about before. But um, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about that maybe we didn't talk about or uh, some project or something company coming up that may not even have anything to do with what we're talking about right now that you'd oh, like boy. to mention? Is there anything at all? Well, wait. Oh, <laughs> no, no, it's a great question and one that I am kicking myself for not having an immediate answer over. I think, um, well, it's something that's kind of, uh, I guess, kind of interested me that I haven't yet really developed a term for yet is, uh, I guess, something that as of now I've been calling, you know, uh, composite compositions. I, uh, so this kind of started a couple months ago. I, uh, I did my senior recital for composition at Oberlin, and I realized after five years of, you know, I was kind of, you know, in many ways, I kind of felt like the black sheep of the composition department uh, that... Uh, my, my recital in the end was an installation more than a composition. What we did okay. is we took over a, a four-story uh, building in the center of Oberlin's campus for a night. And we worked for a good eight months of this. I worked with a team of, of 40 or so choreographers, programmers, musicians, actors, everything. We turned this, uh, this four-story building into a giant dystopic data center. Okay. <laughs> the, installation was called, well, the installation was called Memory Archive. It's, uh, it's very much in the, uh, in the spirit of BIT. But what the idea was, was, um, you know, we all, at least people in my generation, we all kind of lived through a digital profile. The, the means that I use to communicate with the rest of the world, the rest of BIT, are, are, are you know, principally through an email or a Facebook account. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that account doesn't represent who I am. That's, you know, that's the me that I want to present to the rest of the world. And I thought it was interesting that, um, that, while, that uh, while that form seems totally normal when it's online, it becomes instantly really uncomfortable as soon as you turn that Facebook persona into an actual human. Huh. So Memory Archive was an installation. Immediately as you enter, the first room you enter is a, is a, it's an immigration office. And okay. in that office, you are invited to log in to your Facebook account. You have your photo taken by a person in a suit, and you continue onward. And as you walk through this four-story installation, it takes 30 minutes to walk through this gigantic dystopic data corporation, sorry, mm -hmm. uh, the installation literally becomes about you. So you walk through a gigantic office floor, represent, uh, uh, reminiscent of uh, Terry Gilliam's Brazil, okay. uh, in which there it's staffed with uh, choreographed dancers that are all doing this, uh, this routine in which printers are churning out your childhood photos and they're tacking them on the wall and, and wandering around. There's a room where uh, your, um, your, your principal mailing address and its estimated property value from Zillow are posted inside the board of directors. And it, um, it's not information that's hard to get. It, yeah. It's not information that's at all difficult for us to get. We actually had to work with, we did have to work with Facebook legal actually to, uh, to be able to scrape all this information in real time. Okay. But it's information that, you know, as soon as you see your childhood photo, which you've never seen in physical form before, printed out and on the wall of someone's floor, it instantly becomes much more real and yeah. tangible. Uh, the, the amount of leniency that digital corporations for writing the music every room in this composition had its own had its own specific uh specific sonic profile its own specific uh, piece written for it uh was done through this uh, compositing strategy in which i would 
I would the laundry list of uh, of techniques that I wanted a musician to emulate. Okay. I would record them doing that way. And so so every piece of memory archive was written with that mind where there would be it would be a string quartet that played to We're starting to lose you. That I'm actually, you know, recording was. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. That, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm here. Hey, you gotta hate the internet. You gotta hate the internet. <laughs> we love it and uh, we hate it. Uh, so, <laughs> we love it and we hate it, of course. Uh, but so, so these were compositions that were that were made by compositing together different uh, different parts of the ensemble. And that's uh, that's the same strategy that I'm honestly heading into this uh, project with uh, La Orquestra Reciclados, okay. uh, the the menagerie of invented instruments. Is I'm going to be working with uh, with each of the children individually to kind of develop a uh, you know an aesthetic that they like, and hmm. uh, recording all those individually, and then composing them into a piece. And of course, I'm the only one that knows in the end what the general blueprint is for the piece. Right. But I think it, at least at least the collaborations that are that are spontaneous and that are exciting. And that, you know, of course, are, are only possible thanks to digital technology. Hmm. Um, and so that's, I, I suppose that that is the, that is the, the series of projects that I'm most, most excited about are these digital composites of audio. Wow. And uh, I've, been, I've been working with people like that predominantly through this, uh, through this uh, fellowship, through IBM, uh, whether it's, you know, an orchestra in, uh, in Paraguay made of recycled instruments or uh, a giant ensemble of Mbiras in Zimbabwe or... Uh, you know, ensembles that are built out of synthesizers that read volatiles off of plants in Italy. Hmm. It's a process that's that's modular, that's uh, spontaneous, and one that I think is uh, is I, I personally find very interesting, and uh, one that is a uh, of of the time and the society that we're living in, in which we are not physical beings so much as digital representations of ourselves. Hmm. Well. All right. <laughs> and then um, waxing philosophical, I suppose. No, no that's quite all right. Uh, it's, and um, the, uh, the other thing now, too. So this it's always a funny transition. Uh, we are going to be closing uh, the track or closing the uh, show with the track um, uh, uh, capillary flow, I believe it's called. Oh, it's capillary flow. Oh, that yeah. is a that is a very interesting story. If you want to get into that. Yeah. So tell us tell um, us a little so, bit uh, about that before we hear the song. Um, See, I'm, I, I'm I'm curious how you found uh found capillary flow out of all of them. Because uh, so Doug works flow, for Blocksonic. Oh, of course, <laughs> and that, that was on a. Geez, that it was, was on, on a net block. He's one of the net blocks. Yeah, and, uh, he's he he kind of found bit right in its infancy when we did. Uh, when we did Pollinate, which is I'm best known for in the world right now, it's uh, it's it's not a very intelligent song, but it was um, it was a song that was used by both um, a porn video and a Christian abstinence commercial. All right, all right. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you, you gotta love Creative Commons. Don't you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the uh, capillary flow is um, it's from a project uh, called the uh, the Curious Appearance of Aglo New York, and. Uh, I mean, this is the EP that I'm that is definitely most in the mind of Creative Commons music. It's an EP all about the profundities of copyright law, in a sense. Uh, the uh, so the story behind this EP, it, it's a it's a it's a it's a true story. Um, say uh, say you and I together were to write a dictionary, mm -hmm. 
for example. Of course, we don't know we don't own any of the words in the dictionary, but right. we don't have any mechanism of preventing people from copying this. So what dictionary writers actually do is it's something that uh, that that's called a mont weasel. <laughs> Interestingly enough, it comes from an encyclopedia that made a fictitious entry for a person called uh, like Edna Montweasel or something like that. Okay. It's an entry that doesn't exist. We would create words that exist in dictionary. Okay. That way, it's not a word that's recognized by any other dictionary. Must, there would be no reason to have that word in definition. And uh, map makers do this too. There are things that are called trap streets or paper towns most commonly. There are fictitious entries that don't exist in reality, but exist solely for the purpose of uh, disproving a copyright claim. Google Maps actually, I, I believe until this day, has, a, has an archipelago of islands in the South Pacific that don't actually exist. They're, they're only there in Google Maps oh. so that if you happen to copy them, Google will be able to point it out, say that's a fictitious entry, that's not real, they will lose the case. Oh. So one of the first uh, notable examples of this um, was uh, by a company in San Francisco called General Drafting Company in 1930 that made a, a collection of the, uh, oops, are you there? Yeah, yeah, you're breaking up a lot right now during this story. The, uh, I think we keep on dropping out. Yeah, yeah. Cool. It's, okay. It... <laughs> okay, yeah, they, uh, they made, <laughs> they made a, a fictitious entry. Um, oh, my God, it's more common now. Yeah. Uh, no, it's, that's, it might be my end. <laughs> okay, you know what I'll do? I will turn off Wi-Fi. Okay, we're good? Yeah. All right, so it was, uh, okay, so the town's name was called, oh my God, the town's name was called Aglo, New York. It was a collection of all of the initials of the people in that room at the time. Aglo, New York did not exist. They put it in the middle of the woods, in the middle of upstate New York, near the town of Roscoe. Okay. And of course, they put it there, and you know, they don't worry about it, they don't think about it. After Eisenhower builds the, uh, the interstates throughout the United States, uh, Rand McNally comes out with an atlas of uh, of the new roadways in the United States, and Aglo is included. So natural, naturally, general drafting goes g gigs up. You, you copied our map, yeah. and they take Rand McNally to court. Um, here's the strange thing: Rand McNally ends up winning that case. Rand McNally wins that case because, according to them, their evidence is that Aglo actually exists hmm. on the county clerk's office. And so general drafting starts to do some research. And what they realize is at some point in the 1950s, a guy goes to the town that is supposedly Aglo, New York, and builds a general store. And slowly over the next intervening decade, people start moving into this town that doesn't actually exist <laughs> on any map other than as a, as a fake copyright claim. And to the point where there's a church, there's a, you know, there's a fishing lodge, there, there, there are many houses, there's a, you know... You know, there's a county clerk's office, hmm. uh, a town that never existed became a town that existed because of some strange quirk in copyright law. I first learned about the story in 2014 after uh, uh, I believe it was a, a team of uh, people that wrote a lot very, very adamantly for Wikipedia went to go and take photos of Aglo, New York, and they found a town that was entirely abandoned, a town that had uh, that had completely disappeared. Hmm. And I actually went to visit Aglo a couple of years ago and found that, that that indeed is true. A town that never existed 
but was made on a fake copyright map, became a town that existed, became a town that disappeared, and no one is exactly sure why. Hmm. So the curious appearance of Aglo New York is um, it's it's a concept album. It's a you know it's kind of like a song cycle about the history of this town that appeared and disappeared because what we put on paper was not what we saw in reality. Hmm. Which I thought was such a strange item. So Capillary Flow is a song that's it's sung by a wonderful singer uh, for the band uh, Jacobins. That's based in Brooklyn. Uh, his name is Brandon Smith. It's a song about um, about the General Drafting Company that finds this uh, this quirk that huh. finds that Rand McNally had uh, had infringed upon their copyright, but but not actually. Yeah. So the, the term capillary flow, you know, refers to, you know, the, the motion of blood through the capillaries refers to the motion of cars through the United States. And that's kind of the analogy that's played on throughout the song huh. um, about, you know, about a, a reality that only exists on paper. Uh, but, you know, because it exists on one on one medium, humans tend to presume it exists in another. <laughs> that's actually it's kind of a, it's kind of a nice uh, full circle. Uh, Full circle repeats to uh, to to Lena. Yeah. Anyways, you know, an idea that exists only only in one medium does not exist in another. Yet we we change our world so slightly. We change our definition of reality. Right. To be based on uh, on what's mediated. Yeah. Well, hot damn. <laughs> that's that's my response well, yeah, so, so that's, well that's the most academic introduction i suppose i can give for i can i can give for this this rock song that's what that's about to follow me yeah exactly and uh <laughs> so i i want to thank you very much for uh being on the show today and it was it was great meeting you i was glad i'm glad we, we were able oh, to work absolutely. this one out this was this was this was such a pleasure thank you so 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 much for having me. <laughs> thank you and then uh I'll, here is gonna be the song uh Cap Larry Flow, and uh, this has been another Music Manumet podcast at musicmanumet.com. The interstate was carved in like a capillary flow And on the very first road atlas, clear as glass We saw a city called Aglow Cities don't appear from nowhere Yes, the liars and the thieves had copied Back roads don't come out of thin air But we did our home away from home Returned and Aglow stood again Copyright trap drew them down And Rand McNally fell through pits hidden by undergrowth So he drew them to the courthouse Just to hear the explanation under oath But their lawyers held convincing That our exploit was coincidence Blorada for the city we named Aglo Also does appear on census data Cities don't appear from nowhere But this one did The liars and the thieves weren't known yet Back roads still don't come from thin air But we did Our home away from home Returned and Aglo Was a figment of imagination One so small, forgettable and bland Yet the trap that we called Aglo Somehow had a population he 